Hey guys, welcome to the Health Addict Show. Before we get started though, I wanna cover a couple things. This show is for entertainment purposes only, meaning I am not your doctor. So if you have questions or concerns about your own health, please ask a physician, okay? Get the right information for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And welcome to the Health Addict Show. I'm your host, Tommy J, and I got another good episode for you all today. We're going to talk about some pretty cool topics. There's some good stuff happening in the news, and there's a study I kind of want to just talk about because I feel like there needs to be some clarification, but also it's something you really look into because it's important information. And then we'll also talk about gluten today. I think it's an important topic to talk about gluten. And some people have some mixed feelings about it. Some people think it's a great way to lose weight by cutting it out because they are part of carbs. And some people think that there's really no fuss to it. But I think giving some more information on gluten is kind of important for everyone to have a good knowledge on it. All right. First thing in the news, there was a patient, a New York patient, that was actually cured of HIV. And it was the first woman to ever be cured of HIV. Now, I'm going to use the word cure very loosely in a such way because it's not really a cure. What they're saying is that the patient has a undetectable level of HIV. HIV has gone into remission, meaning they cannot detect the virus and the body is able to keep it at bay. Which is important to understand because HIV really does take over the body. It really infects all the cells and it eventually leads to age, which is autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Because HIV is human immunodeficiency virus and AIDS is autoimmune deficiency syndrome. One causes the other. HIV causes AIDS. So it's important to remember so you don't get that mixed up in your head. But the point is, this patient was actually got their HIV levels down enough to where it was undetectable, meaning they couldn't test it, they couldn't check for it, and the patient is essentially cured. They don't have to take medications to help support the immune system to digress the way HIV is attacking the body. Now, if I, don't, I don't know if you keep up in the news, but there isn't really many patients being cured of HIV. HIV is very aggressive virus. And eventually, I mean, we can kind of suppress it. We kind of keep it at bay. Patients have been able to live long times with HIV with proper medicational treatment. But overall, it's not a very curable virus. Once you get it, you pretty much have it for life. And it's not like we're out of the woods yet. There's over 1.2 million Americans that still have HIV. And this is why it's so important for us healthcare workers to be very careful with blood-borne pathogens, especially handling blood, needles, soil linens. We have to make sure that we don't get that through our skin or other ways of transmission because, I mean, it's an easy way to get hepatitis, easy way to get HIV. So it's very important that we take precautions when handling blood. So previous trials, a patient would receive a bone marrow transplant from a healthy donor and their immune system would pretty much recharge the patient's immune system to help fight and combat HIV. Now, this patient, the New York patient, was a little bit more complicated. They were also suffering from cancer. They had AML, which is acute myeloid leukemia, a type of leukemia, and it really was taking a toll on this patient's immune system. So having cancer and HIV, it's really not a good mix. So this patient's treatment was actually more experimental, even some people question as being even ethical. But the point is, the patient went through a type of chemotherapy, and then this chemotherapy would destroy all the healthy immunosystem cells. And that's including the ones that are harboring HIV, even the ones that are pretending to be dormant that were affected by the antiretrovirals. Now here's where it becomes the unethical part. So a lot of people don't like the idea of using umbilical cord blood. And these are from newborn blood that they normally be scrapped anyway. For the most part, you cut the cord and throw it away. But after blood collection, because this has a healthy amount 
of T cells that can form into pretty much any cell that you want. Now, without getting too detailed into this and drowning you guys all out, but the combination of both bone marrow from a healthy donor and the umbilical blood creates a new foundation for immune system health and pretty much takes over what was replaced in the patient. So now the patient has a brand new immune system, stronger, healthier, able to combat the HIV virus. Now, again, something to really stress here. This is a very experimental test, but it does show a stepping ground for the next step. I mean, umbilical cord blood isn't very prominent. We don't have a ton of it. So there still has to be a lot of transplant from a healthy living donor that has a very healthy immune system that most times has to be a really good match because the body can reject this healthy immune system really quickly. And we see this a lot with our bone grafts just for other types of cancer. And the patients go into respiratory distress because of the immune response that happens from this. But because umbilical blood has less markers on it, it's very fresh new T cells that haven't really developed like they would for a baby because they can become any cell in the body that you really need. These cells play an important role to helping develop a new patient's immune system that they need for fighting something like HIV. Again, it's very controversial. A lot of people have problems with it. But again, this is something that'd probably be thrown away in the most part anyway. It's not like you keep blood from umbilical cord for anything else. And there's not a lot of whole yield from an umbilical cord. It's not like they're mining babies to take their umbilical cords. So the point is, we'll just keep an eye on this. Maybe there's more, more studies that'll come out because they can continue to try and attempt and see how well it works. But point is, we'll keep an open mind and we'll see what happens in the future, especially for this patient from New York, because this is a big stepping stone in the treatment of HIV. In other news, though, the CDC and their Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, this comes out weekly, and they have a bunch of different studies that they like to post, came out with a study about the effectiveness of maternal vaccination for during pregnancy for mothers and the associated hospitalization of infants aged less than six months. I'll give you a quarter if you can say that 10 times fast. Now, the CDC's previous stance before the study was done was that vaccination during and before pregnancy was a good idea to protect yourself from COVID-19, which I stand true to as well, because there's a lot of complications that happen with pregnancy, and you don't want to throw COVID-19 into the mix. And there's been some disastrous results when we have seen in our ICUs from patients that have became unvaccinated and pregnant. So the idea is, with this study, that moms who got vaccinated pre post and during their pregnancy had better outcomes than the patients that did not. In fact, the study goes on to say that babies post six months of pregnancy had a 61% decreased chance of being hospitalized compared to their controlled study. Now, the study wasn't as large as I'd like it to be. There's only 379 babies that met the inclusion requirements for the study. And this came out to 176 patients that were vaccinated and 203 that were in the control group that had no vaccination. Now here comes the important figures. Out of the 379, there was 43 babies that were admitted to the ICU, the intensive care unit, and required higher levels of treatment. 88% of those babies that are in the ICU were unvaccinated mothers during the pregnancy. That is a huge deal. And now out of those 43, one went on ECMO and one died. But the point of the fact is 88% of the more critically care needing patients came from unvaccinated mothers. There was some things to also consider though when you read this study. Out of the 379, 80 of these patients had pre-existing conditions and there's over 20% of these babies were born premature. That has a huge effect on level of care being premature, especially with babies that are born pre-30 weeks. 
I mean, there's not enough surfactant even in your lungs to help keep them open. I mean, you can't oxygenate requiring a ventilator to help a baby breathe. So the idea that prematurity isn't exactly equivalented into this study is kind of a big deal. I think some more research does need to be done though, because 379 also isn't a big test group for something of this caliber. I mean, it's a big starting place, but it needs to be more inclusive too. There wasn't a big ethical diversity of patients that were in this study. So I think it needs to be more diverse for more clean ethical data. And it also has to include more patients in it. So obviously it's a good starting spot and you can take it for whatever value you want. You can go to the CDC site and read it yourself, but there is some important information. And there, that is a staggering result though, that 88% were unvaccinated in the ICU. All right, enough of the news. Let's talk about gluten. Gluten's an important topic to talk about. So most of you might have a good idea what gluten is. I'll just give a quick description of what gluten is just so everyone's on the same page. Gluten is like a glue. It's a type of protein that helps keep bread together. Now, it's a good protein to have. Protein's always good, but some people have an intolerance to it. Now, a big category of intolerance goes to our people with celiac disease. Now, for those who don't know what celiac disease is, celiac disease, also known as gluten-sensitive enteropathy, is a type of immune reaction that people have to eating gluten. Celiac disease isn't very prominent. It's only about 200,000 cases a year in the U.S. involving celiac disease. So now, when you consider how many people are in the U.S., it isn't a big part of the population, but it's enough to really consider and understand what celiac disease is so you can understand why they can't eat gluten. Now, with so many people having gluten sensitivity, it kind of has people researching it more as into why is this protein so bad for some people. And it's even come out to a point where some people are having non-celiac adverse reactions to it. In fact, when they look at people with psoriasis, um, alopecia, or chronic urticaria, they've shown that people that when they cut gluten out of their diet, they actually have milder symptoms than those who continue to eat gluten-enriched foods. Now, gluten-rich foods include your wheats, your barleys, your rye, so things like cereals, soups, breads, beer. These things contain this powerful protein, and these people with celiac disease and non-celiac sensitivities need to really watch things that have gluten in it. So what are some of the symptoms of sensitivity to gluten? And especially in celiac disease, they include diarrhea, and it's a lot of it. It's almost immediately after eating gluten products. Constipation, foul-smelling stool, um, you might have a lot of fatigue, uh, and it's really messing with your gut biome as well, because your body isn't really able to sustain a gut biome from the diarrhea that you're having. So fatigue, headaches, depression, these are chronic conditions that happen from eating gluten. Now, someone with non-celiac disease might have the same problems. This can include bloating, stomach aches, diarrhea, headaches, um, anxiety, and fatigue. I mean, your body's not in its normal homeostasis because you're not getting all the nutrients that you normally should from eating foods. Now, some people are so sensitive to gluten, they have actual physical allergic reactions to gluten. That includes skin rashes, anaphylaxis, stuffy and nasal congestion. I mean, it's important to really learn about your body. And if you have a gluten allergy, it's really good to understand it because you could be affecting your body and its normal processes and just cutting these gluten proteins out, your body could get back to normal and homeostasis. Now, some people, I mean, it's good to get a consultation from the doctor and see what they think. But if you really think you have a gluten allergy, there's a simple and easy way to do the test. And I hate to have you not waste your money, but just cut bread out, cut gluten out, cut anything that has wheat, rye, or barley in it. And you should notice a significant difference immediately. And some people really like this diet anyway, because it's a high protein, low carbohydrate diet overall. 
So you're pretty much essentially cutting out a lot of calories this way. And for many people, that means cutting out a ton of refined sugars that come from their pastry and baked goods. So it might be a good option for most people. And honestly, it's a cheap way to figure out if you have a gluten sensitivity. Now, obviously, talk to your physician. You shouldn't do anything considering with your health without consulting a medical professional. But if you want to do a cheap and easy test, that's my that's honestly my advice for you. One thing to really understand with celiac disease, your stomach lining isn't normal, actually. The villa that helps absorb nutrients from your food and help mobile your food down the intestines, they're almost retracted in a way if you really look at them physically. They aren't the normal size, elongated, finger-like structures that you have. So you have a physical change to your intestines. So it's kind of important to understand what's going on in your body. So getting a medical advice on the situation is probably a good idea, but just to fully function and feel better, that's a cheap and easy option. But all right, folks, that's all I have for you today. I appreciate you tuning in and listening. Please follow and subscribe to the podcast if you want to learn more and hear more information. I will continue to put out as much as I can. And you can also check out the other social media platforms for more information. I am officially on TikTok, so you can see some funny dances. I'm kidding. I'm going to put more health information on there as well. So email, text, call, message, do whatever you want. And I hope you stay addicted to your health and I will see you all next time.